0: Good people of los angeles good people of the world good people digital screens physical screens any in-person protest experiences online petition signings calling your local representatives we're out here ryan wallerson joins the pod tonight josh Weiss on the pod tonight slim you guys already know the fcfc family we welcome Mark Anthony K, our
1: pro, pro, pro. Yes, all-star
0: midfielder, to not talk about football, because we don't talk about football in this podcast, although he does have a good first football memory that he shares. Uh, we're here to talk about what it's like to be black in America. We're here to talk about what it's like to be black in Canada. We're here to talk about what leadership looks like. We're here to talk about what it means to have a black and gold player out protesting in the streets in downtown Los Angeles, the City Hall. And we get into a little bit of all of our experiences with race and with law enforcement. It's a a conversation we need to have and a conversation we need to keep having. And I'm really happy to have it with you guys. Slim, why don't you hit him with warning?
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we are on Zoom because we're still not allowed to hang out, but we're still going out to protest. But per usual, we do have potty mouths. We do intend to use them. So if you're around children, or you're finally allowed back at work, you shouldn't be listening to profanity. It's probably a good time to stop listening. What's the system
2: be? What's the system be? Uh, fuck you, Matt. Curse, <laughs> so can I. Fuck him. <laughs>
3: yeah. Fcfc.
4: La vela está encendida.
2: AFC are back, back in black.
4: FC, FC.
1: Welcome to the FCFC pod where two scholars and a dickhead look at the world through a black and gold tinted lens. I am your host Slim. As per usual, I am joined on the internet by Josh Spice. Josh is on mute. Not paying attention, not ready. (laughs) We got big dweez in the backyard chilling. What's up y'all? And we have a very special guest host. You guys all know him. He's a a family pod member. Uh Mr. RC Wallerson is, is on the internets with us today. Gentlemen, gentlemen, how we doing? What up? What up? And we have the million dollar smile from Canada. The, <laughs> the spicy Mac on the pitch. Uh, we have Mark Anthony K joining us on the internet today. What's going on, Mac? What's up, guys? What's up? Glad, to be, on, thank huh? you for Glad to be on us. Cheers. Mark, uh, we're gonna
0: we got you for a brief time. We thank you for your time and we're gonna dive into some very important and pertinent topics here shortly. But here on the FCFC pod, we always like to ask our guests, uh, what is your oldest football memory?
4: Yeah, um wow, it's a good question. Um I would say my oldest football memory hmm, is probably playing uh, like in the schoolyard when I think I was in probably grade three. And I just remember the school I went to, we didn't have a field at that time. So we had to grow up playing on the pavement. And it's funny that uh, this memory is being brought back to the forefront because my girlfriend was asking me today why I have this like scar on the side of my hip. And I was trying to remember what it was from, but it was from those days of just playing on the pavement with all your friends and then, you know, scraping yourself and getting back up and just playing. You couldn't complain because there was no grass field to play at. So that was my uh first true memory of what football really was. And and it's you know, it's been a great
3: journey since Yeah, I feel like TMZ right now. We just got the FCFC exclusive scoop. <laughs> why Mark A Far on his hip. Oh no, <laughs> we got anything like that.
2: I <laughs> alert! Breaking news. But I, I love that, though, because it, it kind of reminds me of the stories you hear in the baseball world out of the Caribbean of cats who don't have bats and baseballs and mm. fields just playing with rocks and sticks in the streets. Yeah. And then by the time they get to, like, the real thing, it's almost easier for them because hitting yeah. a baseball with, like, a Louisville Slugger is a lot easier than hitting yeah. a pebble <laughs> with a stick, you know? Is it, exactly. is it kind of a similar
4: dynamic when you finally get, get onto the soccer field? Yeah, like I will never miss playing on pavement ever again. So obviously, uh, you know, just remembering those times, it was just very, uh, you know, freeing in a sense. We just, we had no care in the world. We weren't complaining. We looked forward to getting, you know, there and, and you know, enjoying the, the recess time they gave us. So uh, yeah, I look back at it now and that's kind of where my passion started to to grow. So Uh, It was, I guess it was a weird moment, considering if I could bring you you guys back to look at that picture, you'd probably be like, what the hell is going on here? But uh, it's just a bunch of kids just trying to enjoy the beautiful games. So, yeah, it's been a a good ride, yeah.
2: Would you say, would you attribute uh, the toughness that you bring to your game today from uh, those early days on the pavement? Easier to get up off of?
4: Grass and pavement, right? Yeah, definitely easier. And I think, you know, you grow up with all these scars and stuff and you just remember that, you know, you just kept pushing on. So um, now playing in the league, yeah, you're going to get hurt sometimes, but I'd rather be the one who's like dishing it out than receiving it. But I think, yeah, my times playing on the pavement have definitely allowed me to be sustainable when it comes to, you know, feeling the impact of other players or falling on the ground.
0: No, I was just going to ask, Mark, like if we if we go back to grade three and that playground, like Mm -hmm. what kind of I mean, is this what where did you grow up, man? Like what city were we in? What what part of the world? I know you're Canadian, you're from Canada. And like, what did those years look like uh, for you growing up?
4: Yeah, no, I was in Toronto at the time. And um, yeah, I grew up in a very nice area. You know, my mom did a good job to situate us in a good neighborhood to grow up in. Um, you know, she did her best with what she could do, raising three boys on her own. And I went to a school at the time that I guess was going through a transition period uh, in the mid-city area that didn't have a field. So, yeah, we had to play on paper. You know what I mean? <laughs> I look back at it now and it's not like it wasn't a school that could afford it. I guess it was just the timing of the matter. Cause I know once my brothers got into school, there was a field and I remember playing there in the summer and stuff, but uh, yeah, no, I grew up in a nice area of Toronto and um, you know, just it's, it's weird to think that growing up in such a populated country like Canada that has all the resources, you still have these stories where kids are playing soccer on pavement, you know what I mean? And it just shows you, um, the the difference between other countries who see soccer as a true um, important sport and Canada wasn't at that point yet when I was at that age but now they've definitely developed that uh, stronghold for it
2: so you talk about uh, uh, your mom you know doing a great job as a single mom raising three kids getting you guys into a good community a nice place to grow up Uh, I kind of come from a similar background where you know I give all the credit to my parents for putting me in, uh, in a position to succeed, but yeah. when, you, when, when we talk about that, I think it's always talked about in a generally positive light, but that situation does bring its own challenges and nuances that come with a new environment if you, you know, didn't grow up there from day one and kind of finding your way, your place in a, you know school society and the, the society of your community. How, how was that experience for you?
4: yeah you know, um yeah, like you said, it's if you do come in at a different time, then you know it could be a hard transition. But you know, since I can remember, like my mom and my brothers and I have lived in the same place since I can remember maybe being five years old, you know. Um, so I grew up in this neighborhood of Toronto, where you know, I could go back home and that place is mine, you know what I mean? It, and um, it's very diverse, and obviously, uh there it was tough at certain moments you know what I mean because you're surrounded by people who sometimes have more than what you have you know and I think people who get through that are the ones that understand that value isn't placed on materialistic stuff that you know you're all trying to get somewhere so you can't like really focus on that but um no like the area I grew up in was great and the only tough transition period was when I actually had to move schools um, because my mom put me in French and I moved to a, my school was in an even nicer area. You know what I mean? And it wasn't as diverse as the school I went to before. So I just remember, yeah, that was a very tough moment in my, in my life. And I remember the first year of grade four was super fucking tough. And then finally grade five hit and, you know, everyone started opening up to me and I still have some long lasting friends from that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough on any kid. And I think, uh, we all figure out a way to get through it.
3: Yeah, man, Mark, I just want to, I think, you know, hearing about Toronto and Canada is super, the way that it parallels and does not parallel kind of um, the state, the United States experience is super interesting to me always. I feel like for the most part, they do kind of, you know, flow and and follow a a similar pattern. But, um, you know, I think um, we're all, you know, we're all still trying to react and reeling from the news, you know, of George Floyd's murder and the death of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, waiting for different corporations and clubs across the world to put a statement out there, right? And Elliot was, you know, was super forward about, yes, we're we're embracing the black community. And then I think your letter came out and it's, my name is Mark Anthony Kay and I'm a proud black man. And it's a letter to And I just thought, man, it just, you know, I've known you a little bit and just understanding you. Having the written word come from your voice and your point of view, I thought was just, the most powerful way that we could have been going about it, you know, and um, I just wanted to kind of get behind your mindset behind writing it. And there's a lot of pain and, you know, and anger in there, but like, what, what were you feeling and, and how did that process happen when you wrote the left?
4: Yeah. So usually I've started to get into the habit of whenever there's something on my mind, I'll just open a note on my phone and I'll just write something, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It, it allows you to channel whatever emotion you're feeling into something else. So it doesn't eat at you, you know, mm-hmm. And it was really weird. Um, I think, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I think my girlfriend was writing something and I was writing something and then Aubrey messaged me and was like, hey, like, do you have anything you would like to get out on the situation of George Floyd and everything going on? And this is meanwhile, I'm writing it. So I'm like, yeah, like I, I have this right now, like I will send it to you. And, you know, I sent it to her and I, it just happened so quickly, but... This has been an ongoing problem. So for me writing this letter, it wasn't like me just reacting to a situation that just happened two weeks ago. It was like things I've seen over my course of living in the US. It's things I've heard about, or even seen in Canada, too, you know, and it was just a a long overdue letter that needed to be I just needed to voice it. You know what I mean? I didn't want to have this just be weighing on my mind the whole time I wanted to be able to share what was on my mind with everyone else and kind of see if it would shed any light on the situation so um you know I there there were some key things I wrote in there that you know once I came to the U.S. or even growing up in Canada I remember how proud people are to be American you know um I think it's one of the most patriotic countries in the world where people are proud to be American and I think that's something that is good and that will help this country move forward you know and i just remember it was everyone would throw it in the face like or in my face would be like yeah this is the land of the free you know home of the brave like free this is a free country free country and then we think about all these things that are in the constitution or that are in laws and you look at canada your neighbors to the north who are maybe even more free than americans Mm -hmm. but we don't say it all the time you know what I mean? We're not always saying Canada's a free country. Like, you know what I mean? It's almost like, we, we understand where we are. We still need to get better, but we're not throwing it in anyone's faces. And it was something I was like, you, not used to, where it was like, yeah, it's a free country. It's, a, it's America, it's a free country. Anything, anytime someone did something wrong, it was like, it's America, it's a free country. So I had to put in my thing. I was like, yeah, you know what? This is supposed to be a free country. But considering everything that's gone on over the last hundreds of years, There's a lot of people who aren't free. And then I I looked at, again, where it's like, yeah, this is a home of the brave. And I'm like, well, this country has a lot of brave men and women, but a lot of people aren't that brave when it comes to standing up for social injustice or standing up for something that doesn't necessarily directly impact their life. And I've seen this over the course of my years here. You know, there's a lot of silence that goes on. And, you know, people let whatever group or minority that is facing oppression deal with it on their own. So that was my, I I felt like if I I use those words, more people would listen, more people would understand, well, you know what? I do want this to be a free country. Well, how can I push towards that? Or I do want people to see us as brave Americans. How can I step up and be brave? I wanted to target it directly to every individual who already knows these words in the anthems and everywhere around the country. So um, it was just a way to just, like I said, direct my mind to a broader audience and see if. I can impact anyone. If it changed one person, then the mission was accomplished because that person could change someone else and it's a chain effect.
3: Dude, awesome, man. I mean, that's, it it just means so much that it's coming from you, you know? And I think even the way you're talking about this slight POV of like, why do you guys tout freedom and bravery so often when you're obviously not stressing that in everyday life, right? It's almost like Mm -hmm. you're telling yourself in something in the mirror to try and convince yourself something that's not true. And um, no, I feel that like heavy, man. And I know that um, Dewey's wanted to bring up a lot of like your um, your your past career in Louisville when you're playing there, and and then yeah. Louisville right now with um, kind of what's happening with Breonna Taylor, um, and just had, has that has your experience living in the city of Louisville, playing in the city of Louisville, um, kind of informed any of your understanding of of race and and discrimination here in America.
4: So um, you know, my time in Louisville was pretty good. Uh, I, I didn't run into any terrible situations that have left scars on me or anything like that. You know, it's, if I experienced something in Louisville, I could experience it here in LA or in Toronto, in my home city. So um, for that part, it's been okay. I think the biggest thing I had to realize was that moving to Louisville, moving to the US, especially a, a city or a, a state like Kentucky, um, it was going to be very different than what I grew up with in Toronto. And I had to understand and adapt quickly so that I didn't learn by being in the wrong situations, right? So um, yeah, I've had, I don't think I had any encounter with a cop. I think one time, um, you know, one of my friends, teammates accidentally like hit a car and the guy was super nice and it just happened that. You know, his daughter came to our games and stuff and it was like a nice conversation. But when the cop came there, it was completely different because this is my one teammate who's white and there's three guys with us who are all black and we're just kind of standing there and we're kind of making a joke. And I think this is what humans have developed a way to deal with um, anxiety and trauma and, you know, tough situations by making laughter or laughter out of it. You know what I mean? And we might not consciously make this decision, but I I know I'm at fault at doing it. And I'm sure you guys know people who have done it, or maybe you've done it in a situation where you just try to laugh something, oh, just laugh it off. And I remember they were just saying how, you know, don't move or don't do anything. Just put your hands up, don't say anything when the cop comes. And I'm like, we're kind of like laughing at it, but then we are like thinking, we're like, fuck, like, we're kind of serious. You know what I mean? And the fact that we have to think like that, but our friend Tim, you know, who's white and who actually accidentally hit the car is less fearful than we are in this situation. You know what I mean? And, and it really sucks because I can't always speak for, you know, black individuals who are not athletes or not in celebrity status, because once someone figures out who I am, they don't treat me that way. They don't see me as black. Mm. They don't see me as oh, this person could do this. It's like, I I said it in an interview with ESPN. It's like, I've seen people on the street who look at me a certain way, but I guarantee you, Josh, if they've probably gone to the stadium or if they saw me wearing an LAFC jersey and realized who I am, they're not going to do that. You know what I mean? So I feel like I got away or didn't get into so many certain situations that other black people have got into because of who I am and for what I stand for in that city. You know? So my time in Louisville... was good because Louisville soccer was the biggest thing there other than the college sports you know what I mean and then I I, I had one experience where I was in Indiana and you know there's a lot of Confederate flags in Indiana Um, and I just remember going into a fast food restaurant and you know a bunch of people came in I saw the pickup truck they have all the flags and stuff and it was just like I, I was just telling my teammates I'm like yo let's just get out of here as quick as possible like I didn't care about the food anymore I just didn't want a problem. You know what I mean? I uh, if this is where these people live, you know, I, I'm coming into your town. Maybe just mosing my way through to go somewhere else. I was just like, you know, what, I don't want to risk the chance of looking at someone the wrong way or doing anything that I would do normally, and then it gets called out. So those are the only times I really experienced stuff like that in Louisville.
3: Gotcha, man. And uh, I'm sorry, guys, if if you guys want to go on with something, I just no, it's it's uh, your point about the role of. Um... I think the elevation of the athlete, you know, above and in the black American experience and the black, you know, experiences, you know, is super fascinating and super super like powerful right now, because I mean, you knowing that and with full knowledge of that took that platform. And then after you wrote the letter, after you did your piece on social media, we saw you on the street marching, you know, and I think that's, that's an incredible kind of, you know, like it's, it's a path for us to see, like, you know, for the rest of us, I texted you Mark, just being like, bro, like, thank you for leading us, you know? Like, I think yeah. for us, you know, or people of color, or just the allies of all kinds, like, we're looking, have always looked for to, to Black folk to lead us in a lot of ways, because you guys have really yeah. through civil discourse. And so the understanding now is like, man, we saw Mark write about it, then we saw him marching, marching about it, and, like, seeing, I mean, Anyone who stands next to Mark and DK, I was taking pictures next to you, bro. Like, it's not a great sight for other people. Let me just say, yeah, okay? You and your lady looking beautiful. 12 foot combined total between you guys. Like, with beautiful, like, gear on. I'm like, dude, what the hell? Like, the a leader. Like, this is like Ali yeah. fucking, like, you know, protesting, yeah. you know, the draft and stuff. And I was like, damn, that's, like, that's my guy. And what you're talking yeah. about, what you mean to this city and this team and understanding what your role as an athlete can do for – you know people's perception and then going out there and doing Correct. it and like what was that like to like actually lead the line and like lead the supporters whom you've seen and not seen but also like yeah part of, part of being a, um part of the part of the solution yeah
4: yeah so obviously when i got the the letter from pat or the like the poster saying there was going to be the protests and stuff the march i was like you know what i'm in right away you know uh without a doubt i was like i want to be there. Like. I put myself forward, like, I have to make sure I'm there. Um, and, you know, when I got there, um, I got there just before they started to march. And, you know, I, I, I thought I was just gonna be, you know, one of you guys, just, you know, a person who doesn't want to stand for this shit and wants to make a difference. And, you know, um, I don't remember his name, or it was actually a girl who asked me, if I wanted to say something and I was like, oh shit. Like sometimes it's easier to sit on your phone and think of all your thoughts and put it together. And then I'm like, damn, like, you know what? Like people are gonna look at me right now to set this off on the proper tone. I was like, I was not ready for it. And you know, I just tried to stay short and sweet and concise and just get my message, up, up, my message across. So it was like, you know what? if you had read what I wrote you understand where I stand with it and I see you guys being part of the change and I'm proud to be with you guys let's do this peacefully and let's you know make change and happen and be part of the solution and that was it and it was nerve-wracking but it felt good that I was in a position where I needed to voice even more concern and you know everyone was just so supportive and you know at first I was like you know what I'm just gonna walk I'm gonna walk and then I was like, you know what, fuck this. Like, I'm going to leave these chants. You know what I mean? I, I want people to know how much this matters to me because I will support anything that matters to everyone who is there. You know what I mean? So I wanted them to see and hear in my voice the pain of so many years of oppression. And that's not just for black community, but that's for every minority. Every minority. You know what I mean? It's not, black people aren't the only ones who are abused by, you know, systematic racism. It 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 goes deeper than that, but I wanted everyone to feel like one, where it was just unity. There is no depiction between anyone, and you know it was a it was a great feeling, and I was glad I was there. I was proud I was there. I'm also very proud of my my girlfriend who steps out of her comfort zone to be a part of it. You know that shows how much character she has and how much she's willing to use her platform to change. I I always say we all have a circle of influence, all of us. Whether your platform reaches 10 million, 10,000 you know, a hundred or ten. You have the power to change everyone's thoughts. So if you use your voice, everyone uses their voice in unity. Change is inevitable. So I, I was just really proud to be a part of that. And you know, I, I thank you guys for making me feel like I am creating, you know, some sort of positive wave going forward.
2: Well, Mark, you absolutely are, man. And uh, you know, I applaud you for everything that you've said and you've done in reaction to all of these awful events. But not even, but just to piggyback off the idea, can you talk about the progression? Because you've already touched on the idea, the significance of your platform, but you've also touched on your education of systematic racism in America from firsthand experience. You know, nothing too negative, but still you've had brushes where you've been made aware of it. Can you just talk about? the progression between those two realms that put you at this point now where you've kind of found your voice, not only able to articulate your words in a written form, but also be able to get up and speak. And how long has that been the case? If this was a movement that happened in 2017, because from the moment that we met back in 2018, we've talked about leadership and you wanting to improve your leadership. And I believe that you have during your time here. Um, how long has it been the case that you think you would have been comfortable playing this role?
4: Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, as humans, we need to develop every possible ability to, you know, strive for for greatness. And greatness doesn't mean just in the sense of what your career or industry is. Greatness is in the sense of how you affect people and whether or not people will take the time to listen to you and respect you. And a lot of the times getting respect from people is not showing that you deserve their respect, but is earning their respect, you know. And being a leader is, you know, being more attentive to problems going on around you and not acting like you can solve all of them. But like I said, being a listener. So when I had spoken to you and said that I wanted to be a leader, it was not just leading on the field, but it was also leading in the change room and leading around my life and around LAFC and just people who come in out of my life. And, you know, I think that with all that going on now, when I have the opportunity to speak up, it feels more natural. It feels more right. It feels like I've done good work for people to listen to me because I feel like if I hadn't carried myself a certain way and then I come out with a piece like this, people are not going to get behind it. You know what I mean? It takes years of making sure that you build up the proper reputation, that people will honor what you're saying. And, Did I think that I was going to have to write something like this? No. Does anyone think they're going to have to write something like this? No. But when the opportunity comes, you have to take it. You know what I mean? And you have to prove what kind of stance you have on certain cases that sometimes are not easy to talk about, you know? And maybe a lot of people are like, yeah, athletes shouldn't be political or athletes shouldn't do this, but no, it's athletes should are humans and humans should fight for what's right. So why Why do we give up our right to fight for what's right? Because we signed a contract or we're, you know, playing a sport for a living. So I realized that I felt like I had enough backing from all of you guys because of the relationships we've created that people would listen to my voice and value it. So uh, leadership is not something you walk into in one night. It takes years and years and years. I think I'm still not done, but um, I'm glad that I've gone to a point where I can voice you know, my, my feelings and, you know, advocate for change. So yeah.
2: Brilliant. Well, again, man, I applaud everything you've said and everything you've done uh, leading these tough conversations in this time. And as you say, I think, I think the work is the work's not done for any of us. You know, I think we all need to continue to strive to get better and be louder and, continue to fight for what's right but it's uh the last couple of weeks have definitely been more encouraging than any other two weeks span correct in the last 10 years when it comes to this so you know we're all a part of it out you were out there saturday i was up there for sunday and that was of a hundred thousand of it was it was surreal it was really beautiful to see and you know all like all we can hope is that it continues
4: correct i agree 100 percent.
0: and and Mark, just to you know, we know you got to cut out here in a couple more minutes, but in our podcast, we hardly ever talk about football. We usually talk about Los Angeles and its culture. And I yeah. know Ryan, you know, coming from New York and his background, and you coming from Canada, then through Louisville to LA. I mean, for both of you guys, you black men in Los Angeles, like, you know, what what would you guys want? You know, the the LAFC community, the Black and Gold community, to know about um, what it's been like now in Los. You know to be black in Los Angeles and what do you guys hope out of this Mark you can shoot first because we got more time with Ryan after this
4: yeah you know I think I think the LAFC community has done a great job to advocate for equality in every aspect of the world so I don't think that there is a drastic change that needs to happen on their forefront or do I think that they need to open their eyes more. I think they are aware of what happens. I think the fact that people are standing up and voicing their opinions is great too. Um, like I said, I think for me, I don't get to experience as many, um, you know, altercations or moments of racism because of who I am and what I've, you know, what I've accomplished, which is not fair. It's not fair. You know what I mean? Because I am black and if you're a racist to, one black person you're racist to me too you know so um i would just say for lafc to continue to create an environment where everyone feels equal it doesn't matter your sex gender race not it does not matter and i think that lafc has done a good job to do that up to this point and now we have to keep going because where you know other racism happens in other clubs or anything like that we can't stand for that and we can't allow that to be part of who we are because then when things like that happen it lessens your effect to influence people you know so when anything comes up we have to nip it right away and i think that's the only thing i would say to them because you know i think like ryan said this change this movement has been bigger than i've ever heard it being. You know, the fact that it's on all four corners of the world. That means people are listening now, right? I don't know how many people are actually behind it, but it means people are listening and that gives us a window of opportunity to continue to push change. So from that point, I think LXC is doing a great job. And, and like I said, it's just continuing to, to, to be better and to include everyone.
2: Yep, no, I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, stay, stay loud and keep your feet moving in terms of keeping the march going just don't lose your voice it's because we know we, we're getting rid of silence now it's not just about i'm not like that but it's about making sure exactly. no one's like that actively exactly um, so it's just about making sure that you're speaking from your chest and speaking on what's right and protecting you know your fellow men that's all we got to do man lafc so far the community from what i've seen is doing a great job of that
0: great um mark thank you for coming on josh slim Ryan, all three of us, four of us, like, you know, we're down to talk about culture, talk about different things beyond the pitch. Anytime you want to come back on and uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. We're we're all enjoying watching your growth and your leadership is really valued.
4: Yeah. I appreciate it guys. Thank you for having me on. Sorry that I had to cut it so short, but yeah, we'll get on another episode for sure. So Josh, just reach out to me. Let me know when we can coordinate that, but you guys are awesome. And I appreciate what you guys are doing because, you guys do have a platform here and like i said people will listen you know what i mean so we got to get them on every corner of the of the page and uh, you guys are part of it so i appreciate it always do all right I love you, man appreciate you, you man all right guys thank you so much well, peace out guys all right
1: we'll see we'll see you in orlando <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> see you guys go good one, peace
0: So we're back, FCFC Pod, here with Ryan, Josh, Slim. Uh, we just talked to Mark Anthony K. Boys, we're in extraordinary times. Uh, all of us have been out there in the streets, had our different experiences. But um, but Ryan, I mean, we're fresh off talking to Mark. I want to give you space to riff on, you know what you felt in his words and then how it's kind of related to your own experience, uh, being out here and just let the people know how it's been. I mean, you know, you grew up in New York and we all know you're New York through and through and being a black person in New York might be being, be different than being a black person in LA. Um, let's talk about it. Let's talk about, um, how it's been.
2: I mean, in terms of the background, Mark kind of hit on a, a key note when he said that because of his and the things that he's done for himself in his career, the, the place he's is a, he, he helps the individual acts of racism, you know, how much he's worth or how proud he is. Right. Um, I don't have those, those advantages in terms of that, uh, that that financial advantage. So when somebody sees me, you know, They see the dreadlocks they see the black skin and it plays how it does uh growing up in new york i mean being an avid user of the mta during the height of stop and frisk um my my train station 145th street on the uh, abcd line there's a precinct in it and so when stop and frisk was really prominent they would just have a table set up and people going to work coming back from work anybody was liable for it and at this time I was interning at the Wall Street Journal and I was wearing a suit to work every day so I didn't look the part of the person that they were trying to stop him first but I in order to help one guy out one day because this guy was clearly just looking for a quota he's like you're my last one for the day so I picked you I put my bag down I said search it search me let the kid go you're not going to find anything on me and that was the first of a few times that I did that and you know the the, there was a certain cop who I gained a rapport with who allowed me to do it but just just the act of having to do that having to to surrender my own privacy in order to defend that of someone else who maybe wasn't at the time as clean a whistle as I was and by no means my clean whistle all the time but when I'm headed to work you're not liable to find anything in my bag except for a computer a charger and maybe my wallet so
3: Hey, Ryan, for the, for, for the listeners um, who may not be familiar with stop and frisk, like, um, can you kind of just go into detail what that means? I mean, for New Yorkers, it's a big fucking stain on our history, but it's also like, the catchy fucking um, police term, the legislation that defines systemic racism in so many ways, right? So can you just go into like, what stop and frisk was for New Yorkers and for the NYPD?
2: Yeah, um, so stop and frisk was a uh, Bloomberg initiative instituted at the beginning of last decade that basically gave cops a quota of s- randomly stopping and searching people who looked like they may be up to no good is this is the simplest way to put it um, and in in conversations with members of the NYPD I came to understand that they 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 really basically had a you know a true quota a certain amount of people that they were supposed to check that you know, if all of them met this number, then a pretty comprehensive check of New York City, mostly through the thoroughways of the subway, um, are being secured. It was a at first supposed to be an anti-terrorist initiative. The problem with it is that it was an assignment given to the New York City Police Department. And so in no time at all, it became wholly centered about around race and a, the quickest assessment of the... You know, the numbers will show you that the vast majority of stop and frisks that they were orchestrating were on, you know, people of color, black people, black men of a certain age, of a certain class, of a certain look. Um, and it, it's quick, it quickly became a problem that lasted way longer than it should have. And, you know, eventually it was disbanded and in trying to run for president randomly. Bloomberg had to discuss it, and it's, you know, it's like Josh said, it's viewed widely as a black eye on his political career, no pun intended, and certainly a difficult era for African Americans in New York, because there were times that you were literally not doing anything wrong, and didn't have anything on you, but still had a chance of getting accosted by the police if you had to take the A train home. And that was just the reality that we lived with uh, throughout, and it was for me, throughout my adolescence and my early 20s. So I fell right into the middle of that demographic during the height of it.
3: Yeah, I think the numbers, I mean, just, I mean, here in, in your perspective compared to even mine, it's just, like, I understood stop and frisk was fucking immoral and wrong from the get-go, but, like, I was never targeted, right? And is the the stats that keep on coming back was, it was close to something like 85% of all stop and frisk were, were hit on Black and brown folk, like, especially of, like, young men age certain you know mid-20s to, to 16 something like that and um, man it really is just like there's certain things when you put a put a put a bow on it and a name on it and like you people talk about institutionalized racism as you know this kind of ethereal cloud that poisons us all and at the same time it can take physical form and shape through you know a police department through through an authority figure so Man, it's just fucking sad and horrible to hear. But that's part of our history. We have to learn from it.
2: At this point in my life, I mean, I, I've got a degree in avoiding the cops. And not just, like, physically avoiding them. I mean, like, even when they try to mess with me, there's just nothing for them to do. Because, you know, I see it's their Weeds legal out I here. I see how to protect myself from it. And weeds legal out here. <laughs> 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 that's, that's definitely a big one. That, that was a, big, that was a big, uh, big burden taken off my back when I got out here.
0: Like okay, so Cold there's disclosure. there's a there's an there's an open category right there, right, guys. I mean, so much of what's going on uh, is centered around the question of race and the question of law enforcement. Um, and like, I'll just like open it up for the table, like Slim and Josh, Ryan too. Like, have you guys had fucked up experiences with the cops before? Like, where th- where things, you know mess with the way you were trying to go about your regular life in this, as Mark put it, free country, but that maybe not isn't so free, at least not f- so free for everyone.
1: I mean, oh. for me, any time that that I was treated aggressively by cops, I, I probably deserved it. So it wasn't like a racial thing. I was I was somewhere I shouldn't have been or part of something I wasn't supposed to. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just because I, I was... Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe once or twice, just because we were in an Asian, I was in an Asian area that did have a little more Asian gang activity. So there were like, maybe like two, three times where I've been stopped, like, on, like on the side of the road, made me take off my shirt looking for tattoos, uh, that type of shit. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, yeah, it wasn't really like, Something I had to to worry about too much. It's just a normal shit. When you see a cop, you tense up.
3: Yeah, I don't know. it's 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 strange. I think right. I grew up in a super um, like right. Like I grew up in Bergen County, which is like I don't like it'd be kind of like I guess a parallel would be like Orange County-ish, close to the big city, right? But and most people commute into the city for for work. Um, they consider themselves fairly liberal, I think, um, and a lot of people are fairly affluent there. But I think we were, you know, one of the few, um the makeup of the town, like little township of Glen Rock where I'm from, is like ninety percent white and then ten percent makes up the rest of like people of color minorities who kind of are in there. So like my family's one of like one or two Asian families like in like a four or five mile radius, right? And so um I saw firsthand kind of like the good old boy, small cop, small town cop and how they protect a lot of my my white friends and um you know, like literally like the boys will be boys um, mentality of like vandalism or graffiti or like, you know, it's just like, it was like small time hygiene for them. Right. All the cops went to our high school. Eventually like they were our dare officers. Right. And so like I saw them protect a lot of my friends, you know, in a lot of ways where it was for for my white friends, they would see as very compassionate and very understanding. Um, I think there was a couple of times where like um, I was going, let me be like five of the limit, um, like kind of swerved around another car. And then the, police kind of stopped me and my friend, both both of us Asian in a, you know, very white part of the, part of the neighborhood. And we're just like, kind of like kept us behind for like 40, you know, like an hour. I think I was already like living in, I was like in and out of college or in LA at the time already. And so they were wondering about my California license. And so I was asking about like, um, if I didn't know exactly like where I was at that time and like that my house was three blocks away from here and my, my parents, Jean and Ani would have been, leasing this house for 10, 15 years. Like there's something about the small town, good old boy cop that like is very uncomfortable with like the new kind of wave coming into town and like messing up um, the kind of, you know, like the, the small town dream that they have. And I think that's, that's similar for a lot of small towns in New Jersey. Um, they maintain this, they maintain like uh, we let the good ones in kind of mentality, you know, and we, and mm-hmm. as long as like we don't disrupt what's going on with the majority of the town, like, then, then we won't bother you. But um, there's definitely a racialized aspect of that. And had I not known that officer, like, and my friend would call him by his name and was like, Officer Dewar, you are our fucking dare officer. Like, like there would have been, I think, some, some issue there. So, yeah, it's small town stuff. And I, I saw it like both ways happen for the good and the bad for me personally, so, yeah.
2: You know, I spent most of my life in New York City Right in the thick of it, where frankly, police officers are probably they probably live in some amount of fear of the people that they're supposed to be serving and protecting. That's just the sad truth of it. It's not because these people deserve to be feared. It's frankly because of a guilt, uh, a subtle acknowledgement of the institutionalized racism that has been enacted against them that has taught them to be distrusting of you know the badge that that these guys wear. But then there's also as As Spice says, he talks about letting the good ones in and not wanting, and cops not wanting to see the demographic of their communities change. After the terrorist attacks, my family moved out to Mount Pocono, Pennsylvania, and there was this one particular day that I was riding my bike around my neighborhood, and this cop tried to, like, flag me down, and I had done nothing wrong. So uh, I dipped. (laughs) I was like, nope, I can make it home. And... (laughs) I was it was it was a downhill. I went <laughs> through the woods at one point. He followed, and he, but this dude followed me like really? he was not letting me get away. And I pull out I'm onto my driveway. I throw my bike down onto the side, and I go straight into the house. My dad's having people over, and he's like, "There's like I didn't I don't even notice them the first there's six or seven of my dad's fr- I my mean, my mom my mom and dad's friends in the front yard, and I just go right <laughs> past them. And like 15, 15 <laughs> seconds later, this cop pulls up into I'm in my room at this point because I just like speed up to the top floor I have a window that shows my driveway and I'm just like and I see this fool I see this fool pulling in my driveway and I'm like you you kidding me and I go downstairs and he's getting back into his car by the time I get back down Mm -hmm. and my dad is just like so what the hell was that and I'm like, I ain't do nothing. You started tailing me. How'd you make him go away? Dude pulled up and saw, you know, six or seven grown-ass affluent black people just staring at him like, mm-hmm. private property, sir. What you doing? And he didn't want the fight because he knew he shouldn't have been there. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just kind of I, like, I, I always remember that. And because to, <laughs> to Slim's point, a lot of my interactions with the cops are, they're, they're, uh, their origins are justified based on what they're supposed to be doing. But that was an example of <laughs> me being black on a bicycle, chilling. Yeah. Not a nefarious thought a hundred miles from my mind. And yet this dude basically hunted
1: me down. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I mean, there, there was so a that, short that kind period of... That
1: eye-opener to the relationship I had with them. There was a short period of time in L.A. where in certain cities, if you were an Asian kid with a shaved head, and you were dressed like a Mexican, but you talk black like cops were going to hassle you a little more. But I think that time has passed and it was a very short time. And that's kind of significant to, or kind of an outlier to, to the rest of it, where like that, that Southern California Asian gang culture was a little more prevalent. Uh, but yeah, outside of those, like maybe 10 years, um, it probably, you know, from like, 92 to 2002 2004 like that's probably when it was bad for asians with cops but then it still was nothing in comparison i'm sure
2: well, well you know it's, like, it's know not swim. even it's the worst oh. kind of competition
1: yeah <laughs> well, well said what were you saying duiz
0: no that that ryan ryan's got better lines than me right now but i uh no i was gonna ask because I know, you know, Ryan has been abroad a lot. He's done a lot of traveling in Brazil and other countries in Europe. Uh, most recently, Slim obviously lived in China at one point. Uh, you know, and, and did the the missionary thing. Josh, we recently went to Italy and bought a Francesco Totti bobblehead, which I proceeded to break a week later. Um,
4: oh.
0: Have you guys had any experience? Like one thing that's sort of like interesting always to look at right is like how the police look and work and look in other countries have you guys had like run ins or experiences with police abroad at all and um what what did what did all that like look like and how how does it how did it color your own impression of law enforcement here
1: i think well my my only run in with cops i think outside of this country actually no there were two Um, first time I went to Mexico, got drunk on the way back to the border, I had to take a piss. Uh, If you guys don't know this, cops are waiting for you drunk assholes to do something stupid while walking back to the border. So literally right when I unzipped my pants uh, to take a piss, I got cuffed, Um, didn't even let me urinate, Uh, patted me down, found my money, dipped out. Um, And then my other experience was in Thailand. Um, if you go to, you know, like the, there's like the areas where the partying is for, whether it's like the clubs or whatever. Um, so when you leave those areas and you're a foreigner, uh, the taxi drivers will drive you through a checkpoint and then pretty much cops are just looking for drugs or whatever to kind of come up as well. Um, in that case, my friends weren't being like, Asians, or, like, Koreans, or, you know, we were all Asian people there, but they were being mad American, uh, and mad aggressive, uh, because Americans forget that the rest of the world doesn't have free countries, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, my, my friend did actually have a weed pen on him, um, and it's basically the same thing, You kind of, you, you have to haggle, and, we sent our young looking friend who looks like he's a college student, but he's in his thirties. Uh, they try to get him for a thousand dollars. And uh, he said, I'm a broke college student. I only have 500 or something like that. And uh, yeah, that's how we got him out of jail. Crazy. <laughs> you
2: know, the, I haven't really had too many international run-ins with the police. I'm, when I travel, I try to be on my best behavior. Just because, like that, that aspect of uh, no, nothing reminds you of how far you are from home, like sitting in the detention center of a, of a foreign country. So I try, I try to keep it as chill as possible when I'm abroad. I'd say the most interaction I've had with, uh, well, the foreign country's armed forces would probably be while I was in Brazil and Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics, simply because they had such a heavy police and even military presence on the streets just to make sure that Rio behaved while it was hosting the world and whether that effort was going to be successful or not was a popular storyline at the beginning of my stay and by the end of it much like Zika at the time I think the not that the danger of being in Rio de Janeiro was overplayed because the north zone is you know it's a dangerous place where people unfamiliar with the city or that look a certain way simply shouldn't go. If They're trying to remain master and commander of their own, of their own circumstance. But um, in terms of the Southern zone, the more affluent areas, much like much other parts of the world, it's like, it's not race that's seen, it's money. Like if you're green, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. Um, And that, that was where I stayed for most of my time there. And they had that place locked down. And the cops weren't looking for issues they weren't looking to make headlines they were just looking to to do their jobs as best they could because they knew the world was watching what's amazing is that American cops can't be ignorant to the fact that the world is watching them because of their horrible track record and yet they just can't seem to they can't seem to help themselves mm. um, I don't think I've ever seen America be able to police its well it was just a city in comparison to a country so it's not a fair comparison but when's the last time that this country went a month without like something awful happening between its citizens and its police force yeah i I really don't think i even know the answer to that question
0: this well this is sort of like a a bridge of that question and i yeah, I, I don't think that there has, I doubt there's ever been the time, a, a month. I don't know if there's ever been a week, Ryan. <laughs> like, fuck a month. I don't know if there's ever been a, a solid week. Um, probably a lot of the day, right? Uh, no, but like for all three of you guys, children of immigrants, um, I'm curious to know like how you, you know, once you get into your adult life and you start like having your own opinions about like your interactions with police and stuff like that. What did, like what was the message that was given to you from your folks like how how were they trying to tell you how to act around the police and like what was their where were they coming from on that? um there was something that like you know at some point it would be interesting to hear from Mark about that because this this willingness to sort of like be active against this and and come out and speak out like uh, it'd be yeah, it'd be interesting to hear uh how that worked in like you guys' household growing up
2: well, my dad is a black man that came to this country from South America in the 60s and moved to the Bronx. So his advice to me about the cops, since probably before I could talk, was that cops are trash, don't trust the cops. If you're talking to the cops, you fucked up. You should never talk to the cops if you don't have to. Simple as that. And if you are, make sure that you cross your T's and dot your I's, enunciate make sure that they give them no reason to lump you into the pool of people they're trying to destroy. Like that's basically in a nutshell, the advice I've been getting from my dad about cops since I I was around to give
3: advice. Like my parents are are fairly, I think, you know, open-minded, trusting people. And I think as Asian people, we definitely miss for the most part, miss the violent angle of police towards us. Um but even my 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 parents are big on like don't involve the police, like they won't understand. It. Like they were just like there's like there's for the language barrier was big, especially when I was a kid, like my parents couldn't really, you know, you know, eloquently talk to the, the cops on exactly what the hell was going on. But um even as like I got older and I was able to explain, you know, a traumatic situation, they're like, we there's a there's there's an aspect that maybe and like within a lot of immigrant culture of like we got to settle this shit ourselves because the system's already rigged against us. Right. So like the, the best justice is going to come from the community. And if we can't figure that out, then like we failed in a certain way. And I it's I think that's fair and unfair in, in a lot of different ways. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of overall mentality I have where it's like, it's not always the, the blue hope in the sky. Right. So that we have the Batman, the bad signal that we can call. So, um, Yeah, I think, yeah, growing up like that, that's, that's what I kind of remember as the atmosphere when parents said.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we're, my parents were the same way. You kind of use cops as a last, last, last resort. Um, uh, You know, but just in general, like the Asian culture, uh, Korean culture is just like you, you're very respectful to authority, whether that's, you know, a police officer, someone you work for, uh someone in an authoritative position at church, you you it's kinda of beaten into you early that you, you you respect those positions and you act act that way when, when approached by them. So um yeah, I mean that, that's kinda of the only stuff that I learned was just kinda of, kinda of what Ryan said, uh cross your T's, dot your I's um enunciate, that type of shit.
3: Yeah. I mean, and shouts to, like, I, I know, like, the Korean culture stuff, like, about, like, respecting authority and everything, but, like, Korean people have been very adamant against police having weapons, like, against having firearms with them. Like, that's a big part of our culture, is the, is the manner in which, at least in Korea, um, they hold them, the officers accountable, and, like, the officers get a lot of stick is because they're not allowed to hold weapons, and it's like, why would you, I think there's an aspect of being able to, to talk f- more freely with police officers, um, about issues if they're not holding firearms and so that's a big part of I think, the think korean justice system like not disavowing that horrible things have been done by the korean military to suppress protesters and opposition but like the police themselves um they do have some riot gear when it gets really bad but the lack of guns i think with them has given the population yeah, there's to totally
1: there's no real fear for police out there
3: right 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 the police definitely work for the people there yeah. do you feel like that sam
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is something that, um, you know, someone like a friend of mine told me that one of his Marine friends told him about when they were deployed um, in, I don't know if it it was Iraq or Afghanistan, I I forget. But even as a Marine, when they were in war, the way they were approaching the situation was different. It wasn't, hey, we're at war, we're going to blast everyone. They were trying to kind of win over hearts out there. They they were knocking on doors at villages and getting to know the people and, you know, like trying to talk to them about, you know, what's going on in their community. <clears throat> and that person said, if if Marines at war can allot that type of service to people we're at war with, why can't police officers do that for our own countrymen? You know what I mean? And and that's kind of where like, you know, you kinda of gotta open your eyes to really what's going on. It's just like this isn't the police aren't bad people; they're just policing the system that's fucked. So, yeah.
0: So that's a really wild. I haven't I haven't heard that comparison yet uh, made, and I do know you know the the American military has their fair share of you know, fuckery that goes on, but uh, you you do you do get the sense that like, yeah, sy- systemically, like, it's harder. You know, for them to probably yeah like go out and kill people like indiscriminately, basically, which is what the police are doing, and even though we talk about the militarization of the police in a way, like the one thing we wish it had from the military was like the sense of like discipline or like you know like rigorous oversight, perhaps, uh and that doesn't really exist yeah, kind consequence
2: of, yeah, that's kind of a twisted don't get court martialed
0: yeah, that's kind of a twisted yeah. irony right there, right um i yeah i wonder that's i had never really thought about that um but just sort of rounding this out on us on a couple of weeks where we had military in our streets in los angeles you had fucking army vehicles on sunset you had uh national guardsmen walking around with guns that i've been told didn't have bullets in them who knows how true any of that is i know you know someone died in louisville from a national guard bullet so not sure if if that's if that's true or not point is we had like shit like that in our streets guys and and we haven't recorded since then uh this is our first recording yeah So i know all of us have been out there Uh, let's just run through real quick like how has it been like what's your experiences have been like being out being out in the streets a lot of us have been cooped up with covid anyways um just fucking soapbox this shit and tell us how it's been
2: oh shit I live right off of Melrose and Vine, so the, the riots that happened before the the peaceful protests were, you know, in arms reach. I saw, I'm watching the news and I see, like, the furniture store down the street with three cars, cordoned by cops, and 10 people on the ground in handcuffs. And You know, oh, that fire. I look outside. Yep, there's the smoke. That's a thing. Um... It was surreal. And then, you know, I I didn't go out that night. Uh, A lot of people in my neighborhood, black and otherwise, definitely came up on Melrose Avenue that night. And I went the next day to kind of assess the damage. Um, The first few days of this whole thing, kind of, I didn't view them as that positive because I didn't, I know that people view the riots as a necessary form of protest, but I just saw so many examples of people who don't give a shit about George Floyd, rioting especially here in Los Angeles that it's it's kind of difficult to to bridge those two things and see it as a as a useful vehicle when it, you can see it being so clearly taken advantage of um, but i have been really impressed by what's come since um especially since the uh the other three officers uh that were a part of the case were also arrested and charged um I think since then this has kind of just turned into all right, that's one, but now there's so many more. So let's not let, you know, this fire be let's not let this flame be snucked out. Let's keep going, let's keep marching, let's keep our voices loud. And that's been that's been excellent to see. Being I went out on Sunday and I was a part of a mass of people that I understand grew to it. some people say a hundred thousand people just walking through the streets of Hollywood demanding change from this bullshit ass institutionalized racism we live in. <laughs> Uh, the system of bullshit-ass institutionalized racism we live in. And, you know, it was powerful. It was powerful to walk with, to just look around and know that I'm around so many people who have had to hold in their anger and their frustration and their contempt uh, for so long and put on faces for, you know, their friends and their oppressors alike. Just being able to get out here and just speak and be heard. Um, it was cathartic. It was surreal. It was much needed. And, you know, in this time of COVID you ever, you always have to be given pause because it's like, wait, you are in a group of how many, well, how far apart will y'all, you know, it's just all the, all this, this uh, convergence of situations that we're dealing with right now. It's an intricate one because it's like, I want to be out, but I've been told to stay in. Other people are going out, but the news is telling me that I should probably still stay in. It's like, what do I do? You got, you got that step desire to be a part of this movement biting at the logical part of your brain saying that you shouldn't go into a group of more than 10 people you know that that part's been difficult especially being in such a dense part of the city but you know history won't remember it as much as they remembered how I felt walking through that crowd so you know maybe ask me again in two weeks if I regret it or not but for now it was was a beautiful experience
3: (laughs) yeah man and I think that's and Ryan, you touched on it, right? It's just like the, the time and place where it's happening is, is um, super unique. And, and I think it's, it's, uh, there is some there's really some potent timingness about it, right? Just the fact that there is a lack of distraction. The fact that, I mean, personally, I haven't been working in two months. And I ask myself a lot. We were talking about it before. Just like, you know, as the distractions, as real life starts to con- like resume, like, how much can we continue to give to the effort? And, like, it is – it, it happened so quick that even the season was going to be, like, resumed in July that we heard today, right? So it's, like, after all that, we are, like – we have to – I think we saw the causes of people being, like, trying to root out the issues within their organizations, within themselves, and try to really answer to um, a higher understanding of, 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 of justice in every, every place of – of business, of worship, of all this stuff. So it's super important, man. I mean, we all have kind of varying degrees. We all have love for, like, the streetwear community. And, like, even seeing, like, what um, La Brea and Fairfax has have went through with the looting and what has come out of it. Well, they're not completely out of it. But, like, Bobby Hundreds and Chris Gibbs, who owns Union, like, they own stores, very reputable stores on La Brea and Fairfax who are hit the hardest, which was Ryan you were saying before um in that neighborhood. Um, but they were saying, like, the fact that the looting turned from, in the past, you try to loot like grocery stores in a bank, you know, to get money. And now like these kids are trying to get Jordans and these kids are trying to get, uh, these people are trying to get like clothes and stuff like that is they said like we've lost, like we failed these kids kind of thing, you know? And like the understanding of streetwear was always a political message about fight against injustice with, uh, with the price of a t-shirt that was cheap enough where everyone can buy it and rock it together and be fucking cool together. But the understanding of what's growing now is like the, the, the flipping culture, the reselling culture, the capitalistic kind of vulture culture in there now has made something that was really politically important. And now it's just made it like at the source of, you know, like a day of reckoning for the streetwear heads in LA, which, and those streets are very important. So out of that, I think those guys are really talking about how do we get back to the root of streetwear and, you know, LA clothing and really talk about issues with. Fashion as art, as an art form. So I thought that was an interesting uh, issue to come out of it too.
1: For me, it's 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 been dope to see everything going on. Um, I think it's it's a lot of people. Um, I mean, like like Max said earlier, when he came to America, something he he felt all the time, heard all the time, experienced all the time was people saying, "Hey, it's a free country. This is a free country." Um, and most of the time when people say that it's, it's for their own selfish desires, when you say it's a free country, it's so you can do whatever the fuck you want. And most people use that freedom to be selfish. And, uh, this is one of the first times you're seeing people, uh, use it to, to educate themselves. Uh, people, you know, of course, uh, black people in America fighting for their own rights, but you see a lot of people that have been complacent for a long time uh finally deciding to to utilize who they are and what they know to to actually be combative of, against it and and you know people not being not racist becoming anti-racist and and when you see that type of unity and that type of energy it's uh it's encouraging because it's it's been a long time coming especially in a country that you know it's 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 not good at self-reflection. You know, you, everyone's seen the memes. We're all on stolen land um, built on people stolen from their land. Uh, And, and it, it, it's the root of it all. I mean, because a country can't face their own sins or police themselves, how are they going to, how is a police force going to face their own sins and police themselves? So there's to me, like a lot of things I've been looking into is just what the deeper root of of all the shit going on is, you know what I mean? Like, where did it start? Um, Been a long, interesting couple weeks with a lot of long, uncomfortable conversations with people in my own community coming from, you know, um, people that, that don't see what their Asian privilege is because Asian people are still going through their plight and very fresh wounds from, you know, racial oppression that came to us from covid so you know there's some people that the long long awkward conversations of why should i go out and march for people that have been beating up old asian people for the last few months and you know like and explain to them that that is in essence what racism is and how our generation has to break that but yeah man it's 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 been an it's been an interesting couple of weeks right
0: I mean, today. You, no, today I was at the Jackie Lacy Black Lives Matter weekly protest, which is on Wednesday at four at the Hall of Justice. Uh, my brother went last week, and uh, I was trying to go last week. I didn't go. I went to a couple other ones over the over the weekend, leading up to this week. But um, one thing that Slim was just talking about, which was really interesting, and it was discussed today, which was like this idea that this is, you know, I mean, black lives matter have been protesting at the hall of justice for the same cause for over a year already every Wednesday. Um, like this is a, is a marathon for a lot of the people that are more actively involved. And, uh, I think, you know, for folks who, this is their first time really thinking about these things, having these conversations, or they haven't had them for a long time. Um, which is definitely the case in my case, you know, I just haven't really talked about this stuff for a while. I sort of assumed my college years in covering rap music and reading, you know, black intellectuals. A lot of that time, I just sort of like, Oh yeah. Assume like, yeah, I learned those lessons, like set it and forget it. But it's not like that, especially not, I mean, that's white com right there, you know, Um, like assuming that you can understand even to a comp- competent level enough to sort of like stop your learning process in it or stop openly conversing about it when you're available, I think is like, you know, systemic of what they call, you know, race, racial neutrality or like, you know, like you try not to, to bring it up too much because it's uncomfortable or whatever. Um, but what they talked about today was how not only is it like a long, you know, it's like a marathon uh, and like, you know, making sure you've got the mental health, necessary to keep going, make sure you're, you know, you're getting good rest and uh that you're balancing the other things in your life and you can still show up, whether in person, in the streets, or online with protests or calling into your councilmen representatives and staying active in the political process and get just, you know, the lesson in civics that it is was that they were really, you know, reiterating the message that like they will try to divide you. Like they will talk about, well, like exactly as slim was just saying well like well like you know what about this plight or this plight or these other plights and like i thought that that was such a you know even as like a white person who like you know i I don't think i've ever openly complained about any like specific like plights against myself um in that regard like race racial wise the shit i complain about is way more existential and like personal of course but uh like i do see that among racial groups a lot that aren't white like that people won't get down with each other because they're competing over like whose cause is like ryan i think said earlier like the competition of whose pain is worse or, or what have you and like I think the optimism that all of us maybe feel about this movement is the cohesion behind it and that people are sticking together. And I do hope as this gets drawn on and all of us get flooded with more tweets and more information and more opinions from different people and more people that we respect or care about come in and say stuff that like, those don't serve as wedges that like, you know, splinter what right now is a really palpably, you know, cohesive unified movement which i don't think even like obama's election i, I went to his um when he got his, the democratic not national you know at the democratic <coughs> convention in denver i like drove up there with some of my friends uh, the girl i was seeing at the time and like you know there was like you know that sense of like optimism or uh, hope for like a brighter future I, i've always you know since i've been conscious of it felt like if everyone's not free, then I'm not really free. Um, And, you know, when I do ignore that, it's just out of convenience uh, for, for my, you know, white privilege, but yeah, like it's really reinvigorated me um, to be back out. And I've already, I think by the time this episode comes out, the FCFC or the black and gold LAFC book club, whatever we're calling it, we're going to start, you know, Actively diving into the book club world and those people in the Black and Gold community that want to want to read along with us and re-educate. Like I'm, I, I hadn't like really looked at the books that were about race that have been out recently. You know, um, there's one called uh, White Fragility that I started reading. There's one called Anti-Racist which I started reading, and um, it's been a real kick in the pants to just be like, dude, like, fucking re open your eyes like this is this is happening there's not a day in my life that goes by that i don't bask in the beauty of black creativity um that i don't so much of my identity and love and understanding of the world was formed through the the black experience and there's 90 percent of the music i listen to i mean it's not like i'm not doing it intentionally it just happens to be the music i love and the creators I love and some of the writers I love and, and the entertainers. And obviously, you know, we had Mac on earlier, the athletes, and it's just like, I, I don't think I can COVID no COVID. Like, you know, I had to make strong considerations about my aunt, my aunt who's on, um, she's on hospice. And like, you know, early on, I was really rigid with, with COVID stuff because I was continually visiting her in her room and, you know, she's sort of towards the end of her life. And I would have never wanted to be the reason that she got COVID and wasn't around anymore for anyone who has a sick relative. I'm sure that they can relate or an elderly relative or a vulnerable person. But for me, once this started happening and I realized, you know, I can see her from the window, like it's, this is bigger than that. You know, it's like my aunt would want me out there um, being with people if I could and participating in these ways. So uh, yeah, it's been great. And, you know, I'm married to an immigrant. Uh, Who's only been in this country for six years, and going through the processes of of talking about and learning together with her about um, you know the experience of racism and how it's worked in this country, and you know people outside the U.S. don't always understand the U.S. Think of how hard it is for us to understand the U.S. You know, Uh, it's it's really difficult for folks outside of it. Um, Yeah, and you know, I, I I watched 13th the other night and just reopened some of the some of those channels and some of those lines of thinking that like i said i think lazily and privilegedly uh sort of said to myself like okay this is like a topic that i that i feel comfortable that i like you know intent uh-huh. on but that's totally erroneous and i think all of us put to ourselves to continue to learn about all perspectives but like like i heard at the protest today you know the, the house that's burning down on the block, like all the houses matter on the block. Sure. Yeah. They all, they all matter. But the one that's burning down is the black American house. And this is the house that we all need to, you know, fucking rush to with our buckets of water and save. And I think it's as much my problem as it is anyone's. So, you know, I'm, I'm really just, I'm looking to make it a regular thing. I don't know. I might, I might fuck around and make FCFC uh, meetup Wednesdays to go, to go to the protests in downtown and, And talk there might be four of us you know might be just the three of us in this room plus me uh you know i
3: don't
0: know i've talked i've talked too much but that's been my experience and i just i know it's it's time for me to continue to listen i you know we have this platform and the people who ride with us you know i think they understand our our politics and they understand that this is bigger in many ways than politics this is about human life um, and, uh, a chance to, I don't want to say be a part of history cause that's not what this is. It's so much bigger than that. It's to honor like all of these, these people who, who don't look like you that have, that have influenced your life in positive ways and to bring a chance for, for them to afford even, a fraction more of the freedom that, that you always have, you know, speaking as like a white person. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. I've, I've been in handcuffs by police like several times. and like, it's always over fucked up, stupid, like, you know, white boy shit.
4: So
0: <laughs> I can't, I, I, I'm a, <laughs> my, my sign says defund the police and I'm sorry, but fifty-four percent of the budget of Los Angeles shouldn't be going to that and I think that there's just there's better ways to think through all this. I don't have all the answers. I'm sure no one does, but I'm I'm here and I, I don't think, you know, this this part of this is going away anytime soon and I hope we all hold each other accountable as sports come back into the picture. Something we talked about before, as our distractions return, distractions of regular life, and not let that creeping sense of you know, for those of us who are in privileged positions, like privileged sense of just like tuning out, um, let that become back into the fore because I, I see no reason why this shouldn't just be a part of regular life. Yeah. Until things are right. And they might not be right in our lifetime. There was a, you know, you had a gray, gray, gray wolf from the Native American Association uh, that spoke today and he was just like, dude, I'm like 65. Or she's like, I'm 75. I've been doing this for like 50 something years. And you're just like, damn. But he said this is was the most optimistic he's ever been. So I don't know if he says that every year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Like a, like a, like a Cubs fan pre 2016.
1: <laughs> oh man. Well, I hope well, is he's there right. anywhere else you guys want to go.
0: I mean, I just want to just say with my last little bit of tea time for today, my last little, uh, that like, I think I can speak for us when like the, this conversation is not over. Like, I think I want to continue to talk about this going forward for FCFC. Um, For the people out there who are part of this community, like continue to let us know what you guys think. Let us know about your experience. Like I said, you know, it'll start to get diffused and some people might resume, you know, life as normal. And I just, I'm pretty firmly of the belief that like, there's a before and after this, and I and I think if the if the after isn't handled right, this whole thing can just fucking tank, even worse than it was before. So let's be part of, you know, part of the ascent. And um,
1: agreed. Yeah, and if you guys have stories to tell, I mean, if it's a good enough story, we'll have you on. If your story sucks, I'll tell you to fuck off. We <laughs> will. Yeah, we talk we talk about Los Angeles and
0: football, and you know, and culture, right? And this is culture, I think. That you couldn't exist in America right now and not be thinking about these things. And we're going to run towards it. We're not transitioning away from talking about this shit at all. So,
2: yes, sir. And if you are in the middle of the third week after Brother Floyd's passing in this country and not thinking about these issues, go fuck yourself.
0: <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> Yeah,
1: Candace Owens. (laughs) And on that note, this has been another episode of the FCFC Pod. Thank y'all for listening. If you didn't like what the fuck we were talking about today, fuck you too. FCFC. 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 FCFC.
4: FCFC. FCFC.